0: All right, but John, because of friendship's sake and everything, just let me ask one question of Chuck Connors. You may ask one question. May I of ask Chuck you Connors? what other things there are? Well, uh, we could talk about the uh, people who control the leagues and run them, like the league presidents and the commissioner of baseball. Oh, is it Branch Rickey? Branch Rickey. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rickey was a little bit concerned, Chuck, that he might have misled you a bit in in the area of disguising his voice, which he wasn't doing, because you would remember Mr. Rickey when you were a rookie in baseball. Would that not be right? I remember Mr. Rickey, who actually gave me my career in baseball, and it's a pleasure to see him again. It's a pleasure to see you, too. Thank you. Mr. Rickey, how about that third lead? Inevitable is tomorrow morning. Well, actually, now, Mr. Rickey, the the new Continental League, you have five cities, I believe, New York, Houston, Denver, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, Toronto, is it? Toronto. You have three more places. Have you had any inquiries for the other three places in the League? Uh, uh, More than we can fill. The embarrassment is in the field of exclusion rather than inclusion. We shall have a very difficult time in choosing the other three. In fact, we are now laboring hard at the moment to choose a sixth one, which will be announced surely in the next few days. Ah, and what is your target date for getting the league underway? Well, the full 1961. Full schedule? Full schedule. 100 and what? 150-some-odd 150 games? I hope. Would be. 154. Major League schedule. Ah, and we're going to have another team in New York. I must say that uh, I'm not as knowledgeable about baseball, for instance, as Bennett is, who's a real fan, but I do think that New York City has lost a good deal since we've Wound up with only one team. I think we need two teams, don't we, Bennett, in New York City? So. There's but the a Giants are doing out in San Francisco. Big button? The Giants are, we're still rooting for the Giants here. Yeah. I am, anyhow. I'm rooting for the Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> You'd better, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, Pittsburgh beat them today. I think we need to add for the record that Mr. Ricky signed Chuck Connors before he learned to fire a rifle through his foot or any other place <laughs> to the Dodgers. That's why Chuck is a Dodger. Thank you very much, Mr. Ricky. Nice Wonderful to have you, you on Wednesday.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody how are you my name is Tim Hanlon and uh, you have uh, come across this little podcast that we like to call good seats still available and it is our curious little journey into the world of forgotten sports that is what used to be in professional sports uh, I welcome you to the proceedings uh, I am honored to have you in uh you know in the in the listening audience uh putting us in your earbuds the most intimate of uh, of audio journeys uh, I can't thank you enough for uh allowing us to uh, attempt to entertain you or at least to educate you or something along maybe just cure some boredom who knows uh, for the next uh you know number of minutes we appreciate it uh, we are uh, segueing back into the uh, the sport of baseball which of course is an endless uh, treasure trove of stories and and uh, rich histories and, and all that kind of stuff and and it's interesting because this week that we're actually going to be getting into uh, something I think it's the first time we've ever done this uh, but there'll be plenty more I assure you. Uh, a, a, an ex- exploration and actually a league that technically never existed uh, is, of course, by now, as you know, in the uh, show notes, it's called the Continental League. It was called the Continental League, or at least was proposed as such uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, most people uh, of that era may remember, uh, especially if you were a baseball fan in the New York City area, uh, you will remember that uh, after uh, the end of the 1957 baseball season, uh, not one, but two, two teams uh, picked up everything that they had and abandoned New York for the West Coast. The uh, the siren song of of greener pastures, if you will. Uh, the New York Giants certainly, in their at that point decrepit uh, was be quickly becoming decrepit uh, 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 stadium known as uh, the uh, Polo Grounds, uh, moving to San Francisco, and uh, of course the uh, maybe more famously the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, the team that uh, you know uh, was always sort of there against the Yankees. uh, Occasionally, uh, you know, uh, you know, made it to the to the summit, uh, but more often uh, wound up not. uh, Rip the soul out of Brooklyn, of course, by going to uh, Los Angeles. And and look, New York uh, didn't uh, necessarily take that uh, uh, sitting down, shall we say? And um, you know, to see two teams kind of just ripped apart. Uh, From the fabric of the New York City metropolitan area. You know, look, there's plenty of history as to why those things happened. uh, And uh, some of them for good reasons and some of them for uh, questionable ones. But make no mistake, not everybody was happy to see these two teams leave. Uh, And uh, arguably, uh, a bunch of the uh, folks in the New York area who were saddened to see these uh, these teams leave. Uh, in particular, interestingly, some of the uh, board members of the New York Giants, baseball Giants, like uh, Joan Whitney Payson, who we'll talk about in our conversation uh, with our guest, Russ Buhite, uh, in a second, uh, uh, very much, along with Robert Wagner, the mayor of New York at the time, said, you know, let's, we we got to get a team back here. I mean, to lose two teams, that's two-thirds of baseball, and to have only one team in the biggest metropolitan area in the United States— Uh, That in the the form of the New York Yankees, dominant and as they may have been, the American League, uh, we got to get at least a National League team back here. Why not? Can't we? Um, And uh, it's an interesting component to a much richer tableau of a story around this idea that was proposed that came out of a lot of this consternation in New York, but then also with other folks around the country who saw that these two California cities getting franchises wondered why weren't they also starting to get some kind of love from expansion, uh, knowing uh, in a post-World War uh, you know, boom time, 1950s going into 1960s, a very prosperous time in this, this country, that they could, too, also support uh, professional baseball. Places like Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, places like Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Denver and Toronto, uh, Houston, uh, you know, uh, various uh, Buffalo, of course, uh, Atlanta. Uh, All teams uh, that named uh, and all cities uh, mentioned uh, as uh, part of this eight-team league that was proposed to launch in 1961 uh, to push and press the issue. Um, But we're going to get into all of that, all the various flavors of the story, uh, whether it be markets looking for pro baseball at the highest level, whether it be New York feeling jilted, uh, the idea of building a stadium generally in Queens. Obviously, the Jets slash Titans were part of that story. Robert Moses uh, the architect of uh, of arguably modern-day New York City uh, architecture and, uh, and expansiveness uh, to interesting results, not always uh, positive. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stories related to this. And Russ Buhite uh, is our guest. He is the author of a very interesting book. It's actually a very personal journey called The Continental League, A Personal History. And uh, as you'll hear in our conversation with Russ in a few seconds, uh, Russ was uh, actually – in the minor leagues at that time as a pro baseball talent uh, and was uh, part of the minor league system that was uh, committed to uh, being part of uh, the Denver franchise in the Continental League and uh, would have been Russ's uh, shot at uh, at the major leagues had things uh, progressed and uh, and solidified. Uh, they ultimately didn't and We're getting into that story, but it's, it makes it a very interesting one. It's not just sort of a look back historically. Uh, it's also uh, filled with some uh, very personal uh, anecdotes and understandings of what was going on uh, at the time, uh, how real, how, uh, you know, the, the the way the press was sort of playing it up, uh, the way uh, key people involved in all this. We mentioned Joan Payson, uh, clearly people like Bill Shea, uh, after whom Shea Stadium ultimately became named, uh, and certainly, of course, Branch Rickey, uh, who we'll talk about as a very instrumental figure in all this. That and much, much more in our conversation with Russ Buhite in just a couple of seconds about the Continental League, uh, the league in baseball that never was. uh, And interestingly, uh, the last uh, major attempt uh, for a third separate uh, actual league uh, in a competition of what the American and National Leagues exists today. Very interesting story coming up in just a couple of seconds. A couple of quick promo notes, please. Uh, please en- enjoy these uh, fine uh, sponsors, if you will. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. You know them. You love them. You can't live without them. Uh, if you don't know about them, well, you will soon find that you cannot live without sportshistorycollectibles.com, especially uh, if you have a sports fan uh, in your life. If you consider yourself a sports fanatic in uh, in your own life, there you go. Uh, visit early, visit often, as they say, and you will find it a- an amazing uh, array of, of choices from the world of sports memorabilia. Some really, really cool stuff. Uh, Dean Mitchell, the uh, proprietor of, uh, of the site, uh, he has a, a whole bunch of, of great stuff, well-curated, uh, well-photographed. Uh, I urge you to bookmark it. And when you do find something that you just can't live without, and I, I promise you, you're going to find something over time, you want to make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Yep, the promo code, that's Good Seats. That's what it is. And you will get, of course, 15% off all of your purchases at Sports historycollectibles.com. So give them a try. I I guarantee you're going to find something. Uh, If you don't find something this week, come back next week and the week after, and don't forget that promo code. Write it down, goodseats. And lastly, but not leastly, if that's a word, uh, whatever. We made it a word, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Why do you want to go to that website, audibletrial.com slash goodseats? Well, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked. That's the place where you use you, you, the listener, the person who's listening to this very podcast, can get a free audiobook download and a free month's uh, subscription to the Audible service to listen to and enjoy an audiobook. There's 180,000 plus titles uh, to choose from in so many different genres. I, I can't. We don't have time to name them all, uh, and uh, it is uh, yours for the free trial, one month subscription to the service, and importantly, most importantly a free audiobook download that's audibletrial.com slash good seats for your free stuff from our friends at Audible. Remember, you can cancel at any time, so give it a try. Uh, You will lose nothing by doing so. Get your free audiobook, enjoy the process, enjoy the book, and uh, you tell me if you don't enjoy the experience. Uh, We thank Audible, of course, for their continued sponsorship of our little podcast. All right, let us uh, segue, shall we? into uh, a, a very fun, a very interesting, and a very personal journey uh, with our new friend, Russ Buchheit, uh, the author of the Continental League, A Personal History. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, I, I started
2: out as a professional baseball player. Uh, I signed with the uh, Giants, the New York Giants in 1957, And uh, uh, signed with the Giants that year, with Baltimore the next year, with Washington the third year. I always tell people that uh, three major league organizations saw fit to release me, and uh, (laughs) it um, was fine. But I think think in those days it was hard— to be given a chance to develop. In any case, I played, uh, uh, I signed with the three organizations. And then in 1960, when the, the Continental League came along, they were making contact with players uh, released too soon or players who had been considered prospects and uh contacted me and uh and I signed with Denver and was assigned to um, Forest City of the Western Carolina League. Uh we'll develop we'll follow up on that because it's it really is essential to the story of the Continental League. Actually I signed with uh Forest City, they contacted me, the owner informed me that um, I would be quote-unquote property of uh, Denver, uh, but that uh, he very much wanted me on the ball club there. And so I signed. So I played, um, uh, 57, 58 I was released by the Orioles, 59 was with Washington, in the Florida State League, and uh, then uh, after Washington released me, uh, I signed with uh, the Continental League uh, in the the Player Development League, the Western Carolina League. Now, uh, in times that I've talked a little bit about the Continental League, I point out that one of the reasons that it was important was that it was important to me personally. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, you know, i had given this game a chance and this is going to be a serious chance because players from the Western Carolina League almost certainly would stalk um, a major league club uh, in the, the Continental League. And <clears throat> so... It was important to me, and I had a very good year uh, in 1960. Uh, but I uh, I had a good year, but I could see a lot of things happening, could see the undercutting of the league. I paid attention to things, and I uh, had been a reader along the way, and I don't know that I was yet a scholar, but I had... Um, uh, university professors encouraging me to go to graduate school, put aside baseball, and go to graduate school. And I, a variety of reasons, I decided to um, uh, led me to decide to go to graduate school after that 1960 season. And of course, I'm glad that I did because the the Continental League. Uh, uh, went under, was really killed by the National and American Leagues. And uh, if I hadn't gone to graduate school and I did, the chances uh, there of my uh, my experience, good experiences in academe would have been uh, more limited than they were. So that's kind of, it's kind of a quick history
1: Oh, that's ve- that's oh, very that's sorry. very interesting. Uh, um, wow, so many things to unpack there. But l- let's start with uh, the sort of, I-, I guess, the minor league experience, right? So uh, yeah. these minor leagues, right? So I, we currently, we know certainly how sort of the minor leagues, uh, plural, uh, sort of exist today. There's a bunch of independent ones and obviously ones that are uh, deeply and uh, exclusively rooted with uh, the major league clubs. But uh, it was uh it, as you were considering or being told that the continental league was uh and denver was your future um how was the minor league system sort of uh, apportioned so to speak because you're mentioning baltimore and washington obviously the minor league franchises uh associated with those but but where is the talent pool and the alliances for uh a new continental league that didn't really even exist yet how how were how was that <laughs> even happening
2: well that's the thing it- It didn't really exist, and uh, that was going to be a problem, and that's really uh, what undercut the Continental League, the uh, whole issue of access to players. But what they did at the beginning, Branch Rickey, who, of course, had spent his entire life in baseball, uh, built the farm system, farm systems, in St. Louis and in Brooklyn, and then got the one started in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> Branch Rickey uh, knew about acquiring players and how to build uh, a uh, a good uh, uh, roster of players over a period of time, and and what he wanted to do, he became the uh, the president of the Continental League, as you probably know. And um, what he wanted to do was to reach out to as many players who had been signed and released as possible. Now, these would be guys like me, who were 19, 20 years old, uh, but who had had professional experience, and had been considered prospects uh, with the experience uh, to build on, uh, uh, many of us, the assumption was, could go on and play uh, at a high level. So that was one area that uh, they started looking at, uh, the Continental League clubs. But another was uh, college players, the belief that uh, there would be an accelerated schedule uh for development of of college players and uh, uh that would have been true i think uh and because colleges were starting then 59 60 61 to go to longer schedules and the like Uh, But then also, uh, they were going to look to uh, guys who had 8, 10, 12 years of uh, professional experience, high minor leaguers who had been released or who had given up the game, Uh, journeyman type players to build rosters and to lead other players along. Uh, through the example of of their experiences, uh, but you know, you if you start from scratch, you don't you don't have anything. Now, Ricky, Ricky was hoping that he could duplicate what Ben Johnson did in uh, uh, 1900 and 1901. Ben Johnson uh, started the American League, and uh, as he did, they were going to have a serious problem getting players. Uh, Ricky came up a little short of what Johnson did. Johnson moved into the territory of the National League, National League, was the only league operating at that point, Major League, but he moved into uh, moved the American League into National League territory. Simply began signing uh, National League players uh, from the Major League rosters and uh, from high minor league rosters. Well, Ricky assumed that he could do some of that, and that he could he could uh, maybe get. Uh, agreement from the National and American League clubs, this would have been 59 and 60, to um, uh, limit the number of players that they controlled through the reserve clause. He was hoping for a while to to limit the number that a major league club uh, could reserve to 40, the 40-man roster. Well, then he thought, well, maybe we can limit it to 60. Um, his, I think his heart wasn't in it uh, because he had benefited over the years from um, uh, an unlimited reserve clause. But anyway, that's where players were going to come from. But that made it a bit iffy uh, along the way. Uh, so uh, they were also going to get players from uh, a few minor league clubs, and the clubs in the Western Carolina League were all affiliated with um, Continental League clubs at the major league level, and uh, four City, North Carolina's with Denver, Gastonia with Atlanta, Hickory with Buffalo, Lexington, the Twin Cities, and so on. Uh, And the idea was to develop players. Well, my belief, uh, and on reflection and uh, looking at it carefully, um, certainly in this book, but prior to that as well, uh, there was probably enough talent in the Western Carolina League to uh, stock um, one uh, major league club uh, at uh, uh, for the Continental League at the major league level, but not enough for seven more. <laughs> so they they were going to have to rely on limiting the reserve clause that allowed. Uh, National and American League clubs to hang on to so many players. Now, going back to the American League model, when they started in oh in nineteen hundred and oh one, very soon the National League back then saw that uh, uh, they were going to have to come peace, come to peace with this uh, new organization. So they signed a new national agreement uh, very soon. I think it was 1903 that the new national agreement came into existence and uh, codified um, items that were in the interests of um, the American League clubs, uh, but also the National League clubs. But the player, the player access or player. Development was going to be a major issue uh, for Ricky and the Continental League, and they certainly realized it. Uh, It it made the the Western Carolina League quite a good league, and um, uh, good things about it. There were a number of really good things about it. Well, also, you, uh, and, know, it's
1: also, you also mentioned, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Branch Rickey too, because he's an interesting character in, in all of this, right? And arguably maybe more of a hired yeah. gun perhaps than some of the other uh, folks that we'll we'll talk about in a few minutes. But he's also interesting because uh, he actually sort of experienced sort of the other, uh, I guess, uh, attempt uh, to kind of broaden uh, baseball's uh, landscape with the Federal League uh, in the oh, teams, yeah. right. right? And, and he was sort of caught up in the St. Louis franchise there and was demoted and and famously, sort of, uh, uh, you know, derided, I guess, by his management or his ownership about, you know, at the time, was some, you know, more uh, creative ideas about how to how to run teams and, and and approach players and all that kind of stuff. Which it just just seems high, highly ironic given the position that he's uh, been hired to do in in uh, in this league. I, I guess it would be really interesting to show uh, how you balance all those personal uh, experiences with sort of uh, the beginnings, I guess, as you look back. Uh, to sort of document all of this. Why, yeah. why was why was this Continental League even a thing in the first place? Maybe we can get into some of the roots of that, and maybe how Ricky got involved in the first
2: place. Yeah, let me let me correct one point that you just made, and I'll go back to to how the Continental League uh, got started. Ricky was a great proponent of the American League in nineteen hundred, 1900, nineteen one. and in fact, he very soon. Became a player with the New York Highlanders, who in 1913 became the Yankees. So Ricky, Ricky was a catcher and uh, played in the major leagues back then. Uh, but he didn't uh, favor the Federal League. Ben Johnson opposed it. Ricky thought that there weren't enough players, really, for a whole new major league. There probably were, probably always were enough, but but uh, Ricky didn't support, uh, he supported the American League as a new league, but he didn't support the Federal League. He did, though, the point you made, uh, was right. He got involved in management with the St. Louis Browns, and then switched over to the Cardinals and uh, achieved fabulous success with the Cardinals uh, not so much as their manager. He became a manager, but his great success with the Cardinals came in player acquisition, the establishment of the farm system in the early 20s, and the Uh, amassing of a huge number of players under his control. At one point, Ricky and the Cardinals controlled 700 players. And these are players who couldn't play for anybody else. They were limited by the reserve clause to playing for the Cardinals or the team that the Cardinals sold them to or traded them to. Now, back to the point about the Continental League and how it got going. 57, uh, as you know, the Giants and the Dodgers, uh, got, they got through the 57 season, but they made uh, pretty much joint decisions. It was uh, agreed that they could move, Giants could move to the coast West Coast if the Dodgers did. Dodgers could move to the West Coast if the Giants did. Well, they both moved to San Francisco, the Giants and the Dodgers to L.A. That left New York as a one-team town, <clears throat> the Yankees. The Yankees were very happy with that. Mayor Wagner was not happy with it. And generally speaking, the baseball establishment was not happy with it. Uh, Wagner appointed a committee to um, uh, see what the committee could do about bringing another major league club to New York, uh, a national league club. So they'd have the Yankees, but then they'd have a national league team as well, uh, a team that would kind of fill the void, the Dodgers and uh, and the Giants. Well, he he didn't succeed uh, in that. Wagner, needless to say, he tried bringing Cincinnati, and turned out they they didn't want to move. Tried bringing Pittsburgh. These were marginal operations. They weren't making much money. Uh, so they, the thought was they might really be interested in moving to New York. Tried bringing the Phillies, Philadelphia Phillies, uh, to New York. And as it turned out, uh, uh, none of them uh, expressed great interest in coming to New York. So uh, Wagner... Uh, Urged that the committee do something else. Well, on the committee, uh, one of the prominent figures turned out to be the the most prominent figure on Wagner's committee was was William Shea, Bill Shea. Uh, and uh, uh, Shea went to Ricky. He knew Ricky's views, and Ricky uh, confirmed those views right away. This was in 58. Uh, Ricky said, oh, absolutely. Uh, What we need to do, though, to expand is to go the route of a third league. Uh, That's the best way to expand. You get eight teams in a separate league from the National and American League teams. They'll play among themselves. The disparity in talent uh... won't be so glaring uh... and after two three years probably three years at the most ricky said we'll be lucky or be ready to compete with the national and american leagues even in a world series uh... round robin world series and that was the basis of ricky's view Um and uh, he worked with, with Shea very hard in 58 and then in 59 and 60. Now, in 1960, uh, the machinations on both sides became, well, pronounced. And I deal with that extensively in the book. Um, Ricky was threatening a war with the National and American League clubs what he meant by war was going independent as Ben Johnson had done in 1900 1901 just signing everybody's players just ignoring the reserve clause uh, on the assumption that um uh, the Supreme Court would no longer be supportive of the Reserve Clause in players' contracts or the uh, right to territorial control uh, that uh, baseball had held in a monopoly position uh, for uh, many years, well, since 1922. That's, of course, a story in itself. But as Ricky threatened that, and Shea did, the owners were nervous, but not so nervous not to fight back. And so they would, um, they did all, and the owners did all kinds of things to um, undercut the Continental League. Um, at first, they s- suggested they were supportive of the third league mode of expansion. First they said that. But then they started hinting, well, maybe we could expand the National and American Leagues by a couple of teams each. So we'll give Minneapolis-St. Paul a team. uh, and, And then we'll move an expansion team uh, into uh, uh, Washington. Uh, we'll uh, uh, put an expansion team in Houston. They began talking like this. Well, uh, even the owners who uh, quickly got on board as owners of franchises uh, in the Continental League, I mean, these were people with lots of money and uh, well positioned. But they wanted they kind of wanted in the elite club they didn't want to be continental leaguers they wanted to be national and American leaguers if they could be, and so they began to be undercut uh in in this way so, so um, in many
1: in many respects this is uh, this is uh, a uh, an attempt by a uh, a group of uh, men right uh, well well moneyed men uh, yeah. uh, to essentially I guess force expansion uh, either through traditional means or increasingly I guess as, as time wore on, uh, maybe non-traditional means And this, by the way this this sounds, this sounds like a very familiar theme that we've we've experienced in, in some of our other conversations over the last year plus with this silly little podcast, right? So the the American Football League's arrival, uh, right, against the NFL, well, not too dissimilar. And, and frankly, the 1970s with the ABA and the WHA, it's almost sort of a recurring theme of, you know, geez, there are places in this country, and baseball certainly at the crux of it at that point, right, where baseball as a market, as an opportunity, as a business – you know, fertile markets that, uh, for whatever reasons are not being, uh, satiated or satisfied or, or even attempted, um, perhaps it's time to take the things in our own hands and maybe force the issue, so to speak. So it almost yeah. feels like it's a very, very strong theme to all of this, no?
2: Yes, very much so. And, uh, I suggest in the book, in fact, I have a, a major component of the book towards the end that, uh, the Continental Leaguers could have learned a lot from the American Football League experience, uh, but they didn't. And one of the reasons they didn't was that they they began to be effectively undercut by the National and American League clubs, and they, they wanted to be uh, members in good standing of the elite organization the already existing major leagues uh but you know to prove your your point to uh, uh reinforce your point we've we've had um since nineteen sixty the addition of fourteen new ball clubs isn't that right I think it is yeah uh with uh, all the expansion that's taken place. Yeah, there there are lots of areas uh thirsty for baseball, wanting baseball, and uh pretty much taken advantage of it. Now I don't know where we where we would go now except to the Caribbean, to Latin America or to East Asia. And there seems to be currently emphasis on uh, on East Asia in particular.
1: Well, I, I think you could also make the argument that are, there are a few franchises that exist now that could probably be uh, better placed elsewhere. But that's for another podcast, another hot take podcast. Um, but yeah. so, so let's circle around that. So July 59 or so, uh, this league is formally announced. And ma- maybe you can delve into some of these uh, gentlemen and these markets that were – uh, were discussed. You mentioned the AFL. I mean, um, you know, Denver, obviously the team that you were uh, promised to. You know, Bob housem, right? Who's uh, also the uh, owner, I guess, at the time of the uh, of the Broncos of the uh, AFL. You'd think that he would have some kind of sort of commonality, but maybe you can give some sense as sort of this uh, this sort of gang of uh, uh, of uh, individuals here who were who who were rustled together, shall we say, to uh, to to bring this Continental League some. Um, some gravitas, some money, and uh, a real shot, uh, at least in the press and in the public's mind.
2: Well, they they were uh, not only people of means, but uh, uh, substantial people intellectually. You mentioned Hausen, of course, uh, at Denver. But uh, Bill Shea was going to play a role uh, with the New York Ball club uh, for sure. Bill Shea was a man of of uh, multi talent. Um, uh, really, a a good driving figure uh, with the the Continental League. Um, the Atlanta Ball Club um, that was a kind of a late addition. Five clubs came into existence quickly and then they added uh f- added three more in the last part of 59 i guess from the and, middle and of for for our, off. Yeah,
1: And for our our, our persnickety, uh audience that's denver that's houston that's minneapolis st paul that's new york city of course which we'll get into a little bit deeper cuz that's obviously a very influential story there and toronto with jack and cook
2: Oh yes you're, yes, you're
1: mentioning the two yes. that sort of, or the three actually that sort of came about afterwards, uh, as the '59 and '60 uh, came about, which was Atlanta, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and then Buffalo in the early part of '60. Yeah.
2: Yes. And it's, incidentally, based on your your comment a few minutes ago, Buffalo is the only one of these cities that uh, does not currently have a major league team. That's right, isn't it? I think. Um, i think all the rest that's uh, correct no do yeah um but so it's, these
1: it were... seems like, it seems like these guys like were and, and i say guys right because the new york city one was obviously uh, led by a very uh powerful and and baseball uh, mad woman uh which we'll get yeah, to in a second yeah. but jack Ken cook right you know yeah. he this is a guy in toronto or whether on toronto franchise right you know, this is this is a person who you know, was part of the um, you know later founding of things like the Washington Redskins and the uh, and the NFL yep. and the Lakers in Los Angeles and the Kings and the LA Wolves and the United Soccer Association and the Fabulous Forum and you know the uh, Bob Howsam uh, in 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 uh, in Denver, um, you know you've got somebody like uh, Wheelock Whitney in uh, in Minneapolis Saint Paul who you know was arguably uh, one of the bu- the great builders of. And expanders of of, uh, of franchises in the NHL, uh, and was a part owner of the with the North Stars, a previous conversation we've had on this show, uh, and the Vikings of the NFL. Right, so it seems like these folks are not uh, naive by any ch- by any means, right? In terms of uh, their 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 uh, funding uh, prowesses and their ability to, you know, maybe architect some uh, quicker vision, shall we say, towards baseball's uh, needed, arguably expansion.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right, and and baseball, the National and American League uh, people played it well in the summer of 1960, and uh, uh, got to Shea. Um, they they got to the different owners in one way or another to get them to kind of turn and to. Then endorse uh, the uh, existing league uh, way to expand, but but you're right. These were these were powerful people, uh, wealthy people, uh, and Ricky. Well, they they all agreed to this uh, as the league was forming. They agreed that there would be a penalty. If any of them defected, I think the penalty was $2.5 million. Well, in 1959-60, that's a significant penalty. That's the equivalent of probably $20 million or close to it uh, now. Uh, and so there was a kind of a bar against uh, easy defection. But then when they got the the assurances from existing clubs, National and American League clubs, uh, to go to expansion. And they they began uh, uh, jumping on that route. And Rick, Ricky couldn't hold them together. If Ricky had been a young man like Ben Johnson, he might have pulled it off. I, I don't know. Ricky... Ricky, I keep coming back to Ricky. Ricky is such an interesting figure. He was accused of uh, putting together socialized baseball uh, with his his new economic model for the Continental League. And I I point out that that's one of the really interesting features of the new league. But it wasn't... Uh, a socialist model, Uh, it was really a corporate model. Ricky had in mind that the new league would operate sort of like uh, U.S. Steel did. You You would sign the corporate entity, would sign all the players and control all the players and control salaries and control training sites, control everything, managers, everything, and apportion the players uh, to clubs as they needed them, sort of the way a large corporation would do in moving personnel around within the, the corporation.
1: All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Boehmer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get. Uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is uh, as clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, She and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com/goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try audibletrial.com/goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. This is something that keeps coming back again and again as well, right? Which is this notion of when owners and or investors, right, come into something new and they sort of put together a structure, right? There's this tension between, shall we say, central ownership and or control, right? More of like yeah. a, a, versus the more unfettered uh, and more independent franchise model, right? Where, yeah. you know, uh, folks have a little bit more or a lot more latitude and, you know, a lot of the tension sort of comes around, okay, what am I investing in here? Am I going to be able to run my own team the way I want to and get the price of my franchise uh, as high and uh, as possible and valuable as possible? Or am I going to be, am I contributing to something that is uh, actually a a group effort, uh, which may actually limit my individual capabilities of, 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 of running a profit and or a sale at some point, right? And it's a very interesting dynamic because not every owner, has sort of that long-term or medium-term vision to kind of take one for the collective team, so to speak, versus trying to see the immediate opportunities or or perhaps maybe, you know, blinded by opportunity uh, to, you know, kind of just run their own thing and get out quick and, and make some bucks.
2: Yeah. Well, we see this in all areas of sport now. We, we certainly see it in the NCAA, which you would think would be removed from it about as far as can be. But the NHL, you know, I mean the NFL, watch the NFL as they prepare for the draft. They're operating very much like a huge corporation would operate. And they've set up a system of fines for owners for speaking out uh, or for one action or another along the way. So, yeah, the point that you make is uh is very valid in regard to I think to uh almost all of the uh the large sports organizations.
1: Well, it doesn't seem like the uh the the uh, rules that were sort of put in place and I'm guessing Shay and Ricky uh, were sort of instrumental in sort of uh, crafting these, right? Where owners yeah. basically had to agree to pay a a, a no certain problem. amount of money to sort of you know fifty grand, I guess, to sort of be a, have a place in the league and and then commit a, an investment, a capital of I think it was a two point five million dollars, not including any potential stadium costs and and having even some seating capacity uh uh yeah. limit yes. so, uh, 35,000 i guess was sort of the sort of the minimum. So those those seem to me kind of i don't know uh, understandable rules by which all of we new potential owners can sort of play by. I, I you know, how much of that is socialism and corporation versus just simply good rules to kind of, you know, get everybody in the same room. I I, I don't sure. know.
2: Sure. Sure. And you can't have anarchy in any <laughs> Any sort of system, you got to make it work somehow. And uh, um, but I, I, I was just suggesting, in my prior comment, that um, it's it's not exactly right to um, call Ricky a, a socialist in what he's trying to do with baseball uh, in 1959 and 60. It's interesting though, I saw this uh, in the Western Carolina League. Uh players well it, it just didn't operate like other minor leagues. Um it was very clear that uh at least at the beginning Bert Schotten and Al Todd were evaluating players and uh players were apportioned um, according to what Ricky thought were the needs of given ball clubs, uh, players signed out of college. Ricky had this, uh, uh, I think his most recent signee was Dick Groat from Duke, uh, but he had this notion that you could bring in college players. Well, he had, he had brought in uh, Johnny and Eddie O'Brien, from Seattle to Pittsburgh as well, the O'Brien Twins. But he thought, Ricky thought, yeah, you get these college players. They're smart, they know how to live, and uh, know how to play. They've had enough experience. He, he got a couple players for us that way one from Pfeiffer College, uh, a guy who had been a pitcher at Pfeiffer College and then um uh second baseman infielder from lafayette college and he he just went on and on about their great virtues well they were they were good players, and they were wonderful teammates they, uh one of them has remained close friend of mine even to now um but they weren't what Ricky hoped they would be. Uh, but that's what he did. That's the way they ran the minor league. It was run with the, the central organization very much in mind. And that was an era uh, when that wasn't done. There was a lot more in that period of, the, well, going back in minor league baseball, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, a lot more autonomy uh, individual control ball clubs um, than there came to be uh, later
1: on. So um, so that's interesting, because that brings me back maybe to sort of the New York uh, exodus, shall we say, in in uh, 57, which arguably, or past 57, which arguably kind of set a lot of the tone and motion for this. Because, you know, those, while uh, needing, I guess, the approval of other league owners of the National League at the time, right you know the idea of of moving two teams simultaneously two very dramatic uh, changes of locale uh, and going 3000 miles uh, away to establish basically new i mean that that feels autonomous to me right and and arguably you know uh, the you know it maybe even sets some of the seeds for trying to centralize some of uh, some of the uh, ownership and the control in the years that followed but maybe we could talk about sort of uh the giants in particular and a woman by the name of Joan Payson because it seems to me that uh, uh, that she is also a very uh uh interesting and and influential figure in all that's not not only in addition to but in addition to uh Branch Rickey and uh Aunt Shea because you know she's kind of the one that uh uh you know that kind of uh, maybe pushed sort of the New York story uh, maybe to the front of the conversation, perhaps, no?
2: Yeah, I, you're right. Uh, plus, the Giants weren't making money. The Giants were known as a fairly poor franchise uh, in the, the late 50s. And uh, the Dodgers were certainly not all that uh, Walter O'Malley thought they could be. Um uh, but uh, uh the the Giants had that old ballpark, polar grounds was decrepit. Um I guess you could say the same about Ebbets Field, uh, but uh, the ballpark that uh, the Giants played in was was really not satisfactory. Uh and something needed to Happen whether they could be uh, they could have their situation improved or not. Nowadays, I guess uh, you just build a new Yankee Stadium uh, <laughs> if you need it. You just uh, you just build it.
1: Well, I guess what I, what I was sort of sort of getting at is that, and, and again, this is my bias, having grown up in the New York area. Right? It seems that um, you know, obviously, between what uh, Ms. Payson and what uh, what Shea. We're involved with, obviously, Branch Rickey, having been in the New York area for quite some time. Uh, The idea of, you know, it seems like a lot of the impetus uh, kind of generated around sort of a core of uh, getting New York a second team. And then, then by, in some respects, almost sort of branching that out a bit into, you know, there are other markets that could benefit besides New York getting a second team. And, and sort of the sort of overall halo of expansion. Um, I don't know. It just feels to me that the whole New York thing, and maybe this is having grown up as a kid being a nominal Mets fan, uh, is a sort of a, um, you know, uh, with Shea Stadium, obviously named after Bill Shea, uh, and, uh, and all the sort of things behind it. It almost feels like that once, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, maybe we get some more detail, Once the American and National League started to kind of budge, I guess, in terms of maybe starting to drip out plans for expansion, maybe a little bit faster uh, than was uh, prior to the announcement of this Continental League. It almost feels like once the Mets were effectively deemed a franchise, um, that the whole notion behind a Continental separate third league kind of dissipated and, and rather quickly. No? Uh,
2: Yeah, it did. Uh, It's interesting, though. uh, Some of the leaders, Ricky, of course, included, uh, believed that this was absolutely, totally the wrong way to expand. Uh, Ricky (laughs) said to everybody who had listened, these people are not your friends. They're cutthroat operators who... uh, uh will be attacking one another, competing for players all over the place, uh trying to uh, uh do their, their opponents in uh and they're all gonna they're gonna finish last and so they won't be able to compete. Well I suppose the the one ball club that gives lie to that the quickest was uh Los Angeles Angels. They finished a few years later. They finished third or fourth. But uh, you know the Mets, Mets weren't any good for a long time. And so Ricky and and some others just thought, oh man, uh, <clears throat> this is not the right way to do it. And they they talked it down a lot. Uh, but there was this. Uh, sort of a, uh, inexorable uh, baseball momentum, uh, expansion momentum, that built up. I mean, I think you're right on that point. And it continued, and, and with each passing uh, expansion, they've done a little better about uh, the clubs and the players available for draft and uh, the other things the supporters of the continental league i still believe my own experience that the continental league would have been the way to go if the national and american league clubs uh and i keep saying national american league clubs because ford Frick, ford frick didn't run baseball the owners really ran things but if they had been more cooperative I've been willing to uh, uh loosen up on the reserve clause made more players available uh they could have made expansion uh work and I think it would have worked uh, would have worked better but it you know it came to came to
1: work. Well, it seemed it seemed like the the uh, the American and National Leagues took this thing seriously enough, right? I mean, the money was there. Oh yes, you had baseball oh, yes. people and people like Ricky in there. You had Shea, who was a uh, a lawyer and, and and certainly understood sort of the uh, the intricacies. Obviously, part of trying to get a new stadium built there as well as sort of the economics and and the real estate aspect of it. I'm um, yeah. I, I just I just wonder, I don't know who was bluffing whom, right? Because it, at some point, you know, it feels like that uh, that you know it, it never launched right and although there were yeah. enough uh, uh aspects of this thing that were that were happening it caved in pretty quickly right once that sort of concession sort of came about i i'm just wondering who blinked right
2: well that's a, that's an interesting interesting question a very interesting point and ricky uh did not uh Uh, quickly enough, it seems to me, or firmly enough, disavow the notion that he had set all this up uh, and that what he wanted was expansion and he didn't care if it was the National and American Leagues. He didn't care if it was the Continental League. Um, He didn't uh, once expansion of the regular clubs became the route, uh, Ricky sort of was willing to maybe bask in glory that he didn't deserve. Uh, because if you read, read the Ricky papers, read the documents, man, he is, uh, he is firmly and bitterly opposed to, uh, these guys who made expansion happen uh, in the the other way. But then when he saw the inevitable, I think he he just sat back and thought, well, okay, let's go with that. And when he would be asked, he just wouldn't, he didn't comment uh, too much as time went along. And he moved to St. Louis again, went to work for the Cardinals again uh, after the, the summer of uh, 1960.
1: Well, in, in February of 60, right. Uh, the, the uh, February 18th, as a matter of fact, of 1960 is when, uh, the league folks are actually, uh, revealed a whole bunch of of specific plans, including an opening date of April 18th, 1961. But it's interesting. And I, I don't know any of the details here, but it was Ricky and Jack Kent cook making that announcement. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, like, what was Cook's role? Like, why was he versus, say, the others, you know, why was he this sort of uh, owner-person representative, I guess, of, of that, right? Was Cook really, you know, sort of behind all of this as well? And or, you know, was was this announcement made with any knowledge that, that some of these new franchises were going to be uh, at least uh, thrown into the mix by National and American Leagues? Uh, or or yeah. was it, you know, I, I just, I, I wasn't there at the time, right? So the the dynamic of that announcement, right, was that sort of fully in the belief that this is going, or this is sort of another act in, in some theater that, you know, ultimately, and pre- again, pretty quickly, right, uh, I think by, what, August of 60, the whole thing yeah. had been disbanded. So
2: Yeah, August. Yeah, well, you could be right about the, the theater aspect of it. No, I don't think so. At that time, in February, uh, the the owners who were most dynamic were uh, Cook uh, and George Kirksey in Houston and Bill Shea, uh, along with uh, Ricky. And uh, I think Kirksey... I think Kirksey, there was no doubt about uh, uh, Kirksey's faithfulness. And I don't really think so about uh, Jack Kent Cook at this point uh, either. And I think that uh, Ricky was coming off a kind of a high at the end of the year of 1959. And then they set up the Western Carolina League. Houston wanted uh, three leagues, four development, three or four development leagues. I don't know what um, the Toronto ball club was favoring. But you're right in saying we weren't there. You can't, when you're not there, you can't read uh, facial expression. Uh, You can't read lots of things that you might understand better. If you were, it's like understanding the Constitutional Convention of the spring and summer of 1787. Uh, if you could have been in the room, there are lots of things you could understand better uh, than uh, than now in hindsight.
1: So what are you, uh, in your perspective, from your perspective, right, as somebody who, who almost would have gone into this league, right? So when you were in the farm system, what what were you being told? Uh, and what was your feeling and and how much of it was, how much belief did you have and or when did you sort of see the sort of writing on the wall that this league was not going to happen?
2: Yeah, I followed it, uh, mainly in the sporting news and, uh, uh, with one or two teammates, nobody was talking about it very much. They were interested in the league continuing to function. The league was pretty well-funded, quite well-funded, actually, and uh, we wanted that to continue and not fold. So many leagues were folding minor leagues in those days, and we didn't want that to happen. Uh, but I I was looking at it a little bit differently than, than most people. Uh, I thought that um, uh, this this held out a real opportunity uh, for me and maybe some of my teammates, some of my teammates maybe even better than me. But uh, uh, I certainly found it where I think uh, uh, lots of guys didn't, and across the league they didn't. But I would say by mid-July, By July 20th, 22nd, 23rd, uh, one of the dates along in there, it looked to me like the Continental League was going to fold. That is, uh, you know, the Major League operation was going to be undercut. And I remember that pretty well, uh, because I talked with the owner. The owner of the ball club in Forest City, was a good guy i liked to drink a little uh and uh, uh i i never hesitated to talk to him about things ask him questions about uh, different things and uh i think i got a pretty good scoop from him that there wasn't much chance uh of the, uh, the continental league itself becoming a major league in 61 and 62 and on though i think he believed and it was true of course that the western carolina league was going to continue he was pretty bullish on the western carolina league now that's i remember that pretty distinctly but other than other than those things it a long time ago a lot of other things happen in my life. Um, but uh, that's kind of the way I remember it.
1: Well, look, if the Continental League had uh, had actually happened, though, do you think, uh, and, and assuming you were, your play was uh, uh, decent enough to, to get a look, um you think you would have played the next year in Denver?
2: Uh, well, here's the question. Here's the issue. The next year, it would have had to operate – if it had operated, I probably would have played because I wasn't I wasn't really tired of playing, um, and I assumed that I could go to graduate school at some point. But uh, I I loved the game, and uh, and wanted to play. If it, the uh, the Denver Ball Club of the Continental League didn't operate. As a Continental League club, all the players, including myself, were under the control of the Tigers, Detroit, who had the general working agreement with uh, Denver of the American Association. So that was a conflicting issue in my thinking in the fall and winter of um, 1661. They sent me a contract, Denver did, but I knew that because the Continental League had folded or been undercut, that I, you know, I'd have to make it within the Tigers system. And I probably wasn't going to have a chance to play uh, in the American Association. Now, i learned in going through the Ricky papers and looking at all the evaluations of players, in my own case, I received uh, pluses for running speed, pluses for strength of throwing arm, pluses for fielding, but uh, a flat line for uh, home run power. And I was um, uh, listed in each case where I saw a listing, as double a now I think that what that meant i mean I'm pretty sure that that meant that uh that's what they that's what they saw that I would be a good double a player uh but you know once you've once you've identified yourself as a good or decent double a player. Well, you can play beyond that. Certainly, play beyond that. Uh, I didn't have any question about uh, my abilities along the way, but I didn't, I didn't hit home runs, and uh, as a first baseman outfielder, um, that I realistic uh, thoughts probably would have taken over before very long. So I'm. I might have played for another year, maybe not beyond that. I don't know. <laughs> but well, that double A, that's thats interesting. When I, I look at it now from the perspective of a uh, nearly 50-year academic career. Well, I could have been a double A ball player and uh, uh, had a life of uh, maybe managing in the minor leagues and riding buses and doing this and doing that. That would have been it.
1: <laughs> well, I, there there might have been some silver lining though. So as you make your own decision about you know uh, moving on to to you know your your extended academic career, um, I, I'm wondering if if some of your uh, your teammates and 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 uh, and others around you at the time had even maybe if you were incapable of of doing so, but looking sort of somewhat longer term, because it does seem that uh, around that time, you know. Despite the demise of of this Continental League, which never fully actually launched, there was movement towards uh, opening up uh, more fertile franchise territory for more teams in Major League Baseball. Right, so that that sounds like that translates to eventual, although not immediate, opportunity for more players. No.
2: Yeah. Well, I I tell you, I know I could play first base better than Mar Fronberry. <laughs> I couldn't many people could have. I couldn't I couldn't have hit the home runs that Throneberry hit. Though uh, you know the great story uh, the, my favorite story about Throneberry, he hit a triple uh one night Casey Stengel was man it was uh, coaching at third base I think he was. But uh Throneberry was called out. For missing second base, and Stingle reminded him that he had missed first base too uh, in circling the bases. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. Uh, I I knew how to touch them all uh, <laughs> in the times that I did it. Um, so yeah, that's it's interesting. There were ball clubs available. Uh, and uh, there would have been some chances, yeah, would have been. But so much depends on how well you play at a given time, how you show up at a given time. If you make the most of your the opportunities exist that exist. I, I saw so many guys over the years who were. Talented, I mean talented beyond belief, who just couldn't play. They didn't know how to play or they, they just couldn't play. On the other hand, I've seen so many players over the years who had just marginal ability, but who were they made themselves great players. Dick Groat, for instance. Dick Groat couldn't run, he couldn't throw. But he was a, an outstanding Major League shortstop. David Eckstein, who most recently played for the Angels and the Cardinals, he didn't have uh, Major League ability, but but he certainly uh, showed it. Pete Rose couldn't run very well. Pete Rose didn't have a very good arm. He could certainly hit and uh, proved himself in that. That sense, but you can go through uh, the histories of of Major League Baseball and identify just lots of players who might not have been great on the ability side, but showed up well enough, showed up, showed that they could play, got a chance, and had good, uh, good long careers. So a lot depends, I suppose, on maybe what we call intangibles, you think? I think so.
1: You know, I hope that uh, you truly appreciate, their fine listeners, the uh, the service that we do for you every week here. And Good Seat's still available. Uh, if you are not benefiting uh, and taking advantage of all this uh, this knowledge, about sports history and forgotten sports history, at that, uh, such as our conversation with Russ about the Continental League and its importance, and uh, for people who don't know about it, uh, and and the importance of what it represented and put into motion. Uh, when you go to cocktail parties or you're uh, on the golf course with the buddies, or you're sitting on the sideline watching your kid's soccer game, and you're trying to come up with some interesting chatter uh, to uh, uh, get through the game and the weather, perhaps on the sidelines. Uh, these are tidbits of uh, great value, and uh, I hope you're using them wisely uh, in, uh, in your conversations and in the, the, in your, uh, you know, your exploration of, uh, of uh, discussions with various people uh, in your daily lives. Uh, I hope that uh, you're finding this stuff as interesting as I do. I, I, I find it fascinating, uh, and I know a certain segment of you out there in listener land uh, do as well. I, I know this because you are very kind to send us uh, some notes and some uh, tweets and some emails and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we appreciate that. We also appreciate you doing that uh, on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, of course, where you can search up this episode with Russ Buhite. And uh, also, when you find that episode, you can uh, click on uh, some links there. you see some great photography that we, uh, we unearthed about uh, the Continental League and its, uh, uh, its positioning and all the various people involved. And, of course, you can find the link to the book. Uh, the continental league a personal history it is published by our friends at the university of nebraska press and uh, by buying the book uh, or clicking through that link uh, on our website at goodseedstillavailable.com you will of course give us a little a little uh financial love a few shekels if you will Uh, and that's a good thing for us because that helps uh defray some of the costs for getting this uh, silly little podcast out there and uh, into the ether and uh, into your earbuds. so we appreciate you doing that and uh, while you're at goodseedstillavailable.com make sure that you also click around to find out our uh, our various social media uh, places where you can follow us uh, during the course of your day uh, we'd like to put out uh, imagery and, and tout uh, what's going on this week in the show uh, people tweet at us and we certainly like to respond and we appreciate you doing that so at twitter you want to find us at Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats still available, and uh, you will also find a little Facebook page devoted to our show as well. Uh, as long as we decide to stay on Facebook, who knows? Uh, it, uh, it's a day-to-day proposition, but uh, for all intents and purposes, we're still there now. You'll find us there, too. And uh, again, of course, you know the website. Feel, feel free to visit us early and often. Send us some email, et cetera. Uh, lots more good stuff coming up in the uh, weeks and months to come. Uh, again, we appreciate your uh, responses to the show. We're uh, we're overwhelmed. Uh, we've, we've certainly tapped a nerve, we think, uh, with this kind of programming. And we appreciate uh, to no end uh, your support and uh, listenership. So until next week, I bid you all a fond adieu. And uh, I wish you nothing but safe travels and uh, and goodness until until we talk again. Take care, everybody.